Amen. You may be seated. And as you are seated, you may, thank you, Emma. You may uh, please open your Bibles and meet me in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, then Romans. Romans chapter 8, the New Testament, excuse me, 9, verse 1. We've been in 8 for a minute. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square, and it's actually very wild to see all of your faces. I would just like to put that out there so that I can get over the moment that it's happening in my heart and in my mind. Um, it's been a minute since I've looked out. You've had to endure my face, but I've gotten to get to see yours uh, today. And again, please forgive us for the miscommunication or the, the lack of clarity. If you feel comfortable taking your mask off, you may do so now per CDC state and city guidelines. Um, and if you'd like to leave it on, that's cool too. It's totally up to you. Uh, Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5 will be our primary text. Um, and I, I just want to confess from the very beginning, I, I'd like to do something today I've been trained not to do. Um, I'd, I'd like to use this passage as a launching pad into something else. I'm not supposed to do that. I have been trained in seminary, particularly by my father, who was also a pastor, to never do that. My job as a, as a preacher and teacher is meant to open up the scriptures and be bound by the text and to sim simply convey the original author's original purpose to the original audience and then try by God's grace through the Holy Spirit to apply it to today. But I've got to talk about something that Paul doesn't say, but that he does. Paul does something in Romans 9, 1 through 5 that has stolen my attention all week. And, and, I, and I, I imagine that if we understand what he does, that it will captivate all of us as well. And I'm, I think Paul knows he's doing it, but, but it's so much part of his nature as a follower of Jesus that he doesn't always step outside and call attention to it. And I think it really needs attention today. Paul does something which is not part of his point, but is fundamentally important for us to understand, I think for the sake of the church's integrity today. See, Paul does something which is really countercultural to our time. Listen to what he says, and let's try to watch what he does. Romans chapter 9, verse 1 through 5. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So what does Paul do? In a word, he shows emotion. He shows emotion. A shift has taken place. For eight chapters, Paul has articulated the gospel, and primarily what he's been doing in communicating the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is he's been shaping our minds, shaping our thinking. Paul has taught us how one is made righteous before God. And in chapter 9, he shifts away from this overarching explanation and address, and he directly considers the plight of Jewish non-believers. And he gets emotional. 
Paul gets emotional, and not like that fiery, passionate sort of preacher emotion, right? He's sorrowful. In other words, I think what Paul does is he allows his theology to take on flesh, something I think we all need to consider. He allows his theology to take on flesh. After all, if Paul has been teaching, and I believe that he has, and if it's true, and I believe that it is, it has some dire and serious implications. If salvation is a matter of God's sovereign choice, by grace alone, through faith alone, through Jesus alone, then a lot of people are left out. If it's God who justifies and God who elects, then a lot of people are left out. In fact, many of us in our own Christian formation, in our own Christian story, that idea has been really hard for us to overcome intellectually, emotionally, and otherwise. See, a lot of people have not been chosen. A lot of people will not be saved. A lot of people in particular who Paul reflects on here in Romans 9 who share his ethnicity, who share his culture, who share his familial heritage. But he's not cold about this. You know, some of us sometimes like architect this idea of Paul in our minds, right? That he's this sort of cold and brutish theologian who just like tells it like it is and then walks away and goes, I told you the gospel. He's not like that. Paul shows emotion. His mind and spirit, if you will, are not disconnected from his heart. As Pastor Tim Keller reflects on this particular passage, he says, we catch a glimpse of the love of others that along with Paul's overriding concern for the glory of God, which drove Paul. And I want to suggest to you, this is really foreign to us today. In the church in particular, outside of the church for sure, but my job is to come into the house of God first. Are you with me? It's easy to point the finger to somebody else, but why don't we point it at ourselves first and ask for God's help? See, what does Paul do? Paul loves the Jewish people. He is Jewish. Paul loves the Jewish people, yet he fundamentally disagrees with them. Are you picking up where I'm going yet with this? What's more, Paul has just made a case for eight chapters, for eight chapters, that their way of life and their way of being leads to death and wrath and hell and separation from the God of the Bible. The disagreement then is substantive and it's incredibly important. It has eternal implications. Yet he still shows emotion. He still loves them. That's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about loving people you disagree with. And I want to talk about disagreeing with people you love and ask a few questions around that. See, after all, isn't that what Paul is talking about? If you look at verse 1, he says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. He's talking about the truth. And so I want to explore three ideas around the nature of truth. We'll consider it this way. First, the compassion of truth, then the humility of truth, and thirdly, the assurance of truth. So the compassion, the humility, and the assurance. And my prayer is that as we learn to embrace these three things about truth, that we'll actually love people we disagree with and disagree well with people that we love. Are you with me? Let's pray. We need God's help in that. Amen? So let's, let's pray. Father, we're about to do something where uh, we're doomed to failure unless you show up and help. <laughs> unless you invade our hearts and our minds, help us to see sin and our brokenness and our need for salvation and help and rescue and remedy. We want to love rightly, and yet we don't want to let go of truth. And in order to do that, we need your Holy Spirit, because left to ourselves, we often choose one or the other. And so I pray for my friends, my sisters, my brothers. I pray for myself, that by the power of your Spirit, we learn to do that. 
not because we take really good notes, but because your spirit changes our hearts. When your, when your word is proclaimed, your Holy Spirit moves in this place and, and in the gathering of your people all over the world and your will is done. And so we just submit ourselves to that and, and we're just so impressed with you at your power, your goodness, and your grace. And so we humble ourselves before you and we ask, uh, Father, that your good, pleasing, and perfect will would make a home in our hearts and that we'd be more like Jesus as a result. And, and so we acknowledge that we need your Holy Spirit to do that. We need your word to do that. And so we're coming to you by the power of your spirit. We're coming to your word by the power of your spirit. Have your way in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, everybody agreed and said, amen. So uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but a lot of times the truth makes people very unfeeling, makes very people unkind. Or to put it bluntly, as I'd like to consider today, is that oftentimes Christians can be real jerks, Right? And in fact, sometimes it is their Christianity that they believe gives them license to an otherwise, otherwise act like unfeeling and unkind people. And I want to suggest to you, and I think the entire scriptures suggest to us, that's not cool. That's not true. That's not right. That's not who we are called to be. See, there's a lot of people for whom the truth makes them unfeeling, and Jesus is not one of those people. He told his earliest followers, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. As Paul has taught through Romans thus far, the good life, right standing with God, holy living, justice, something we long for in our time, redemption, all of these things only come by the grace and work and mercy and love of Jesus Christ. He leaves no room for an alternative pathway to salvation. He says, I'm the only way to the Father. We've explored this in previous Romans passages. Jesus is exclusive. Jesus is the most exclusive idea and person that we could ever surmise in all of literature and history upon any generation. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. And the Apostle Paul has actually announced the exclusivity of Jesus to a group of, or rather the Apostle Peter did, to a group of very annoyed Jewish people back in the early church, in the earliest days of the church. Peter said this in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It wasn't a popular idea then, and it's certainly not a popular idea now. Many are still greatly annoyed by any claim of exclusive truth or truth with a capital T in general. Any kind of presumption like this feels incredibly exclusive, narrow-minded, and usually people view it as quite hateful. I wonder if you've ever experienced this yourself or wrestled with this yourself or heard someone make this claim or statement or thought, given this thought about Christianity. See, I, I think underneath this presumption or this annoyance is a particular principle and a, and a presumption that we have that love and truth can't coexist. You either are going to tell me the truth or you're going to love me. You can't do both, right? I don't know if you've ever bumped up against this presumption, but it's persistent in my heart often, and I think I see it. Rather, I have spoken with many of you in our expression or experience of seeing this a lot in our time. See, Paul here in Romans chapter 9, I think is communicating the implications of this really illiberal perspective. And it did not lead him, nor did it Jesus, to an unfeeling relationship toward people. Jesus did not hate people he disagreed with. And perhaps 
That is the truth that we need to just hear and settle in today and let that contradict every presumption that the earth is giving you right now. Jesus did not hate people who disagreed with him. He died for them. You're all sitting here. I'm standing here, right? We are all people who at some particular point in time, and usually every now and then through the week, disagree with Jesus. And he loves you. I think Jesus particularly demonstrated this when he looked at a collection of people over Jerusalem, and he said this, or rather Matthew records it this way about him. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. In other words, telling them the truth, healing every disease and every affliction. And then here, when he saw the crowd, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus, yes, is mad exclusive, but he is also the most inclusive person you've ever met in your life. He looks at this crowd and has compassion on them. He's not even asking, like, well, what have you done for me lately? Or how much of what I said do you believe? Are you with me? And he's, not, he's not gauging his affection based on their submission, rather, or understanding of his truth in that moment. See, Jesus is the truth, yet he has compassion. See, our presumption that truth and love cannot coexist crumbles in the presence of Jesus. If you bring that perspective to Jesus, he'll destroy it. We see this when he meets this so-called rich young man, another situation in Mark chapter 10. The man seemed to completely misunderstand Jesus, disagree with Jesus, and disbelieve and dislike radically all that Jesus had communicated to him. And yet Mark tells us something about Jesus. The way Jesus responded to someone looking at Jesus and saying, I don't like that, I disagree with that, I'm going to walk away from that. Here's what Mark tells us Jesus did. He looked at him and loved him. He didn't get in the comment section, church. He didn't retweet him and then just start barraging all kinds of things about him. He looked at him and he loved him. God, help us. Truth and beauty are in harmony. Jesus, hear this, Jesus does not use the man's disregard for truth as an excuse for Jesus to disregard love. See, in Christ, truth and love live in perfect balance in the form of compassion. The word for compassion in Mark 9, one of the earliest discipleship moments I remember with my dad was him telling me this word. You can imagine much of our relationship. It was the word compassion, which is the Greek word splachnitsomai, which is so fun to say. It literally means to hurt in the gut, to hurt within yourself, within your body. So, so in other words, what's being communicated in Matthew's gospel, is that when Jesus looked at a crowd who disagreed with him, who rejected what he had communicated to them, Jesus was physically moved with pain by love for those who didn't know the truth. He hurt. Paul has just spent eight chapters, and we the better part of a year on the doctrine of justification in Romans, right? And remember, justification is the pronouncement of righteous standing, of righteousness before God. It leads to human flourishing. It leads to eternal life with God. We've been given this truth then, church, in Romans. We've been instructed by God's Spirit. And so we should be so careful to not allow this view and understanding of the truth, spiritually and otherwise, to puff us up and lead us to disdaining our friends and neighbors who see things differently and who live differently and fundamentally disagree with that idea. 
That's the power, I think, of Romans chapter 9, 1 through 5. Not necessarily what Paul says, but what he does. Paul's passion for doctrine does not make him cold towards people. Instead, he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. He's grieved and even laments that he can't take his kinsman's place. In fact, he repeats himself at the start of chapter 10. If you look, move your eyes down to chapter 10, verse 1, Paul says what? Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. See, through Christ, Paul embraces truth and love in the form of compassion. This is rarely what we experience today. It's rarely what we experience in our social media and political rallies, Thanksgiving tables, the comment section. In our cultural moment, to disagree is to hate. Have you noticed how often the truth gives people license to not only disagree, but to disdain? I wonder what's going on in your heart. What's going on in mine? Let's start there. It's easy to remember someone who did that to us and a group of people who are really good at that. Let's start with the church because it seems like Jesus does. What about you? What about me? Is the truth engendering compassion within you? Do you have compassion for those with whom you disagree? Do you want to be right or do you want to show love? The compassion of truth then is simply this holding truth and love together at the same time. It's refusing to choose one or the other. And when truth does not harden our hearts toward others, I think the fruit of humility is born. So that's the compassion of truth. What about the humility of truth? Well, humility is actually one of the only moral qualities that Jesus ever said, I have it and I'm going to give it to you. One of the only explicit moral qualities that Jesus says, I've got it and I'm going to give it to you. So many of us, myself included, go, I'll never be humble. I'm so arrogant and proud. And Jesus is like, that's not what I said. That's not what I said. Jesus said, I'm humble. Come here. Here's, here's where he said it. Matthew 11, verse 28 and 30. Come to me. You probably know it. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Keep going. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That phrase, lowly in heart, is humility. It's humility. Perhaps one of the reasons we're so tired is because we're so proud. Jesus says, I want to make you humble by taking my yoke upon you. Jesus says that he's humble. And now, as one who has claimed to completely know the truth, and to be the truth, this is actually a tremendous statement. Jesus in one place says, I'm the truth. And he also says, I'm humble. Why is this so earth shattering? Because isn't it true? Usually the more we know and the more understanding we have about the truth, the more arrogant we become. And the, less, the harder it is to be humble. Because we look at all these peasants who don't know what we know, right? Oh my goodness, I'm so glad you didn't make me like that person. What kind of degree did you get? What school did you go to? Can't believe that's what you think, right? And we begin to compare and contrast ourselves to one another. 40, 50-year-old people still wondering what, what school someone went to and engaging their value as such, right? It's hard to be humble the more that we know. And Jesus is actually saying, I'm the truth and I'm humble. How do we do this? How do we remain humble as we grow in the knowledge of truth? Here's, here's what I believe the scriptures are teaching us. The way that we become humble the more we grow in the truth is to see people, not just ideas. It's to see people, not just ideas, or by esteeming both truth and love. Like Jesus and like Paul, we embrace both. 
Paul demonstrated this when he was speaking about food sacrifice to idols. If you remember this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. A debate arose among early Christians as to whether or not it was appropriate to eat the meat which was offered up to false gods in worship. Practically speaking, in a pluralistic society like Rome and Corinth, believers and non- were invited over to the homes of non-Christians, to their friends, to have dinner, which seems like a simple enough prospect, right? But then they would sit down and go, wait a minute. I know your faith. I know your thinking. I, I know that you worship idols. I know that this meat that you are now putting before me in generosity and love was actually sep- sacrificed to a false god, and now we're going to eat it. What do I do? Do you think it's complex to go over to a friend's house and talk politics? They weren't even sure if they could eat the meal. So here's, here's a little like generational arrogance that I think we as millennials, as an elder millennial, I'd like to speak to us about this, right? Like I barely made the team. I, ju- I just made the cut. We are very good at believing we're the first people to have ever experienced whatever we're experiencing. There certainly isn't a book written about this, so I'm going to write it. Right? There certainly isn't a podcast that already talks about this, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to host that mug. Right? This is the thing I'm figuring out for the very first time. In the first century, Christians were trying to figure out, how do I love my neighbor when they have a different faith than I do? And when they put a meal in front of me, do I eat it because I want to show them love, or do I abstain because I want to love my Lord? That's really hard. You and I are not the first to navigate complex human relationships. This is what's happening. So we should all with itching ears turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Meet me there. Just one one book of the Bible over to the right. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We'll look at the first few verses there. Paul addresses this. He takes this head on in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And keep, keep this prevailing question in mind. Should Christians abstain from eating a meal if it's offered to idols? Suffice to say, Paul is really good at this. It's not yes or no, right? Paul's very good at not just giving us that, that kind of statement. It's such a complex question, which is actually really helpful. Paul writes this, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 through 3. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge, which is in quotes there, puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if Anyone loves God, he is known by God. So, I, I love this. The, the answer to the question is like a series of other questions. Right? So, the answer to our question of should we eat this meat is, is really a series of other questions. Like what? Are you loving your brother if you eat or if you abstain? Are you centered on the truth in making your decision? Or are you centered on your comfort? Are you, are you being loving about it? Are you embracing knowledge and love, Paul asks. See, the truth can and does make us haughty when it is not complemented by love. As one writer has put it, love without truth is sentimentality, and truth without love is harshness. You see, they belong together. And so when we're answering a complex question like this, we must hold them in tension. Or as the folks from the Anne campaign has put it, have put it, that Christians can both love their neighbor and bear witness to the timeless truth without contradiction. See, when harmonized with love for others, love for our sisters and brothers, and love for our Lord, the truth actually builds up. It doesn't tear apart. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8. In other words, the truth, what? Makes us humble. You see, Paul understood that, that idols are not real. That's the truth. He knew food neither makes us holy nor defiles us. That's the truth. G. 
Jesus even said that in Matthew 15. He said, it's not what goes into you that defiles you or into a person that defiles you, but what, what comes out of you. In other words, Jesus is much more concerned about your heart than your diet, right? He's much more concerned about why you are saying and how you're speaking to your neighbor than making sure you're eating the exact right thing. And Paul knows this truth. However, look what he says. Move down from 1 Corinthians 8, verse 3, down to verse 7. He says, however, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. In other words, not everybody understands what Paul understands. Not everybody agrees with what Paul is saying. Not everyone sees it the same way. Not everyone knows the truth. And so what does he do? What ought we do when we sit down at a table like that? Does he just eat? Does he just abstain? Does he just start an argument over the table? Does he disdain those who are not as educated or as enlightened, as spiritual as he is? No, look at verse 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. This is, fa this is fascinating. What does he do? He sees people, not just ideas. He sees his brother, not just a thought. He thinks about others. He asks crazy questions like, what impact will this have on my community? Can you imagine that? If we're in the middle of a debate and we ask the question, how will this impact my community? Not just, how do I feel right now in this moment and am I going to win? How will this bless my brother? In other words, what Paul humbles himself. He knows the truth, but he still shows love. He lays down his rights. The truth has not hardened him. The truth has humbled him. Let me put it this way to you, church, because I love you so much. Christians do not just ask, am I right? But they also ask, am I showing love? Am I showing love right now? That means a lot of the things that we think are really easy, well, it's easy to say yes to this, and it's easy to say no to that. It's actually not that easy. You've got to bring your whole self to some of these conversations. You can't just bring your social media account, right? We can't just bring like the latest pundit and what they've said. Oh, I heard this person on the late night news. I'm just going to quote them without giving them credit, right? Make it like my thought. No, you've got to incarnate this mug. You've got to live this out. You've got to go, I don't know, but I know I'm supposed to know the truth and I'm supposed to show love and I'm going to remain curious, not caustic, right? Help us, God. What about you? What about me? Is the truth making you humble or is knowledge hardening your heart? See, the compassion of truth is living with truth and love at the same time. The humility of truth is to see people, not just ideas. Biblically then, if you do not have compassion and humility, you don't know the truth. They can't be pulled apart. Some of us, this goes against the way that we grew up, even in spiritual formation, where to grow in discipleship was actually about the bits of knowledge we learned from the Old and New Testament, right? And having word drills or sword drills is what we used to call them. Like, who can find the verse the quickest? I know what it says. I know where it is. Jesus is always asking, I don't care what you know. I care what you believe and how you live, right? This is how he's measuring us, and, and this is how he is working in us. 
Some of us believe that we are not equipped to be group leaders, to be even members of this church, or to talk with our colleagues about Jesus because we don't know as much as so-and-so. And I face this question all the time. Oh, Jason, I wish I just had you in my pocket. Weird, don't say that. But then I could bring you to work with me all the time. And then when my friends had a question, you could be there and just go, chapter, verse. First of all, I'm not great with chapter and verse, y'all. I'm really not. Second of all, if God wanted me to have your job and your colleagues, he would have given them to me. If he wanted me to have your neighbors, he would have put me in your house and put me in your apartment and put me across the street from those people. What if he actually wants to incarnate the gospel with you in the way that you demonstrate love and submit yourself to the truth in a way that is directly connected to the way that God knit you together in your mother's womb? What if we stayed curious? What if we stayed humble? What if we showed compassion? You see, when these things start happening, there's this assurance that starts to come from the truth. See, in some church communities, God forgive us, and ours included, the truth has been spoiled by hate. And many have muddied the water so much of truth in order to demonstrate love for their neighbors. In in other words, we believe the opposite reality. It's the opposite extreme, that compassion and humility must be overextended into relativism. What do I mean by that? We might say with an affection of impulse or an, an impulse of affection, desiring to show love. Who can claim to know ultimate truth? I, ca- I can't possibly know the truth. Who am I to tell this person what reality actually is? I can only know my truth and love people and let them believe their truth. However, that's not what the Bible teaches, is it? That's something we've come up with and then searched for verses to proof text that idea. This is not the the necessary trajectory of compassion and humility. Being compassionate and humble does not mean dismissing the authority and exclusivity of the God of the Bible. The most loving thing we could ever possibly do for our neighbors is love and live and tell the truth with love. See, at first glance, it may seem like Paul, if we go back to Romans chapter 8, is sort of apologetic and even embarrassed by the idea of election or predestination. And so he begins to, it might feel like pushing for some sort of like moral flexibility. Look back, Romans chapter 8, verse 3. What's Paul say? For I wish, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Doesn't it seem a bit like Paul is wishing to not only switch places with his Jewish brothers and sisters, but in some kind of way in doing that, lacking trust that God knows what he's doing. That it it would be better if you saved them and not me, or saved all of us and not some of us. As if to suggest, if he had it his way, he would do something different than God. This is really dangerous, and I think we do this with some regularity. We're guilty of this every now and then. See, when we don't or rather, when we do leave our desires unchecked by God's word and his holiness, we can presume that we see something more clearly than God does. I often speak with many of us about this particular doctrine, about this idea, and believing that it would be more loving of God to save everyone and not just predestined or elect some. We should be so careful about this. See, if we claim that this, then we, we are essentially underneath that having more moral clarity and moral, moral superiority to God. That we see something he doesn't. That we feel something he doesn't. That we have more love than he has. But I don't think that's what Paul is doing. Notice, after he communicates this wish, right? 
he lists all of the ways in which the Israelites have been blessed by divine and powerful hints so that they would be confronted with the truth of the gospel. Look at verse 4 through 5. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So Paul is like, all of this happened in their story. Even Jesus was birthed from their ethnicity, from their culture. But but even though their family, stories, promises, traditions, worship, great examples of godliness, and Christ himself, they did not accept Christ. Paul is acknowledging this. Now, this doesn't lead Paul, where, where it often leads some of us. God, help us in this. It doesn't lead Paul to change the truth or to overextend grace to uncertainty, or to a lack of assurance, or to relativism, like it's just up to you to decide. Notice how Paul concludes this thought in verse 5. Christ is God. Christ is God overall. Christ is blessed forever. So though he has agony and sorrow at the prospect of wrath and separation, and though he has compassion and humility and love for his Jewish family, Paul is ultimately settled in the nature and power of God. He trusts the Lord that that He is God, that He is God over all, that He is blessed forever. Some of us too quickly go, well, I don't know, I'm just going to trust God. But some of us need to at some point finally trust Him with things like this. Submit ourselves to him. See, some of us don't go through some intellectual processes and, and exercises and thoughts and, and, and learn because we're, I'm just going to trust God. It doesn't really matter. It's all going to shake out in the wash, right? This is not what the scriptures teach us. But some of us have been belaboring and lack of trusting God that we just go, well, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to figure this out. And this isn't right. And I'm going I'm to love more. I'm going to know more. All of this. Sometimes we just need to trust him. He's worthy of that should not make us apathetic. It should make us worshipful. See, Paul embraces love and truth. Paul sees people, not just ideas. Paul finds then, what? Assurance. Similarly, when the rich young man found it hard to part ways with his wealth and to obey and and give away his wealth, in other words, he doesn't submit to the truth of what Jesus is telling him, Jesus' love for him does not lead Jesus to augment the truth. Right? This is what's really hard. He sees the rich young man walk away, and my impulse is like, all right, never mind. You can come in. Just keep your wealth, but also you got to show some love too. All right? Like worship God, but hang on. I, I want to morally compromise there because it feels so loving. Jesus doesn't do that. We see this when Jesus is actually weary and heavy with the truth that's in, of his impending suffering. He even asks the Father to remove the obstacle or augment justice, if you will. In his words, to take a cup from him, the cup of wrath. But instead of changing the truth, Jesus surrenders to love. Hear this, Luke chapter 22. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. In other words, could could we change this? We change something about this. Nevertheless, Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours. Jesus finds assurance in the harmony of truth and beauty. He trusts his Father's will. He trusts his Father's providence, even when he is coming face to face with the cost, with the implication, with the suffering of the truth and beauty and love of God. 
Jesus embraces love and truth. He sees people, not just ideas. Jesus, therefore, then finds assurance in the truth, and he moves forward with trust. As we learn to embrace truth and love and see people, not just ideas, the truth will bring you assurance. The truth will set you free from fear. It will drive out fear because of love. And so what is this truth? What is this truth that we are assured of? Well, it's the gospel. It's the good news that we, who disagreed with God, who hated God, and the Bible actually says that we were enemies of God. Right? Enemies of God were loved and seen by him. How much more so ought we see people who disagreed who we voted with or voted for? How, how much more ought we love people who disagree with the way we're educating our children or what our home looks like? Are you picking up what I'm throwing down? You were enemies of God. You disagreed with everything about him, and so did I. And he looked at you, and the scriptures say he loved you. He loved you. He didn't compromise his truth. He held on to his truth and his love. How much more so ought we in the feeble and simple things of life not hate those we disagree with, but love them as God in Christ has loved us. He demonstrated that the love of God is better than you think it is. It's more flexible and powerful and enduring. The truth is more cogent. It's more thoughtful. It's more powerful than we could ever imagine. Do you see? We are assured by truth because truth is not just an idea. It's not just a thought experiment. It's not just a doctrine. It's a person who loves us and keeps us. See, the compassion of truth is that we can hold on to truth and love at the same time, directly contradicting the cultural norms of our day. The humility of truth is that we actually see human beings, not just ideas that we fight for. That Christians say, not am I right, but am I showing love always and at the same time. And the assurance of truth is that truth is a person who loves you and keeps you in Christ. See, I think we're able to love those who disagree with us and disagree well with those who we love because God did that first. And he's in control of all of this. So may we be a people that submit to him in truth and love. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, whew, we need your help. We can all share stories of ways we've found the end of our own truth and the end of our own love when confronted by someone or something that disagreed with us. And so I pray for my sisters and brothers that this week, when they are confronted with disagreement or even disdain and hatred, that we would ask not, am I right, but am I showing love? And help us to be a people who do both who embrace truth and love. We don't choose. We want to do this, and we desire to be a people of love and truth because that's who our God is. We tell a lie to the world when we choose one or the other. We tell a lie about you. And we want to be a people who are centered on your truth. So help us, empower us. I pray that for my sisters. I pray that for my brothers. I pray that for myself. And we pray that it would be for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.